0: And literally everybody that was there bowed down to that statue. And my friend Jane and I were standing there and we looked at each other. And I heard as clear as a bell, thou shalt have no other gods before me.
1: All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, It blew into me. I have never been the same since then.
0: That was it. I'm done.
1: I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 37. I interviewed Dina Dye. In this episode, we get into her latest book, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark. As you'll hear, Dina Die has an amazing gift of teaching. She's able to read the scriptures and pick out some of those deeper meanings and insights that someone like me just won't pick up. So, I hope you're blessed. We get into all sorts of different things, including Noah's flood, Ezekiel's temple, and the Elephant Discourse. So, with no further ado, Let's get weird. Welcome. Thank you for for coming on. I'm really excited. Uh, there's a really a lot packed into your to your book, and I'm ready to dig in. Um, but let's start with your testimony. Uh, Once you start telling us a little bit about how you grew up and how you came to know Christ.
0: Well, sure thing. It's it's quite a long story, so I'll, I'm not going to go overboard on it, but. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, and so my family's Jewish, going back as far as the eye can see. I tell everybody I come from a long line of very short people. They're all Eastern European, mostly from Russia and Poland, who all emigrated uh, to Canada. And uh, my grandfather, for example, he escaped from the Bolshevik Revolution. So they got out, they were able to get out, some of them emigrated to, uh, to Israel, and we... We didn't see a lot of those that side of the family until much later. So I grew up in a very close-knit Jewish community. We celebrated the feasts and we you know, set aside the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And uh, I went to uh, an Orthodox Jewish summer camp. I went to Hebrew school, learned, uh, learned Hebrew. Mostly Hebrew school was like you learned Hebrew, but you had no idea what you were saying. So I learned all the prayers, etc., and then my family moved outside of that community uh, to out the outer regions of the city, and we were in an entirely Gentile neighborhood. Uh, there wasn't a Jew for them, you know, as far as the eye could see. And so we were kind of an anomaly in the neighborhood. And so when I went to school, I was the only Jew in the school. So... Uh, later on I did experience some uh, anti-Semitism when I was in in high school and stuff. I didn't really understand it at the time, but later I came to understand what was going on. but anyways, so all of my friends saw it as their duty to save this Jew right Now you have to remember I don't know anything. I never read the Bible, I never heard about Jesus, I didn't know anything. So they take me to their masses on Christmas, all this sort of thing and, My parents, I think, kind of felt so sorry for me. So, for example, on Christmas morning, all my friends' mothers would put presents under their trees for me. So I would go out in the morning and I'd go from house to house and they would just load me up with all these presents and I'd go back home. I just thought Christmas was the greatest thing. I had no idea what it was, but I knew it was a good day. And... uh, when I was in public school, they had a, there's a it was a 20-minute segment in which it was sort of religion class. And the mm-hmm. teacher would tell me that uh, Dina, you can leave the class now because they knew I was Jewish. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're not gonna tell an eight or nine-year-old to get up in front of the whole class and leave and everybody watch. You know, that that was very intimidating. So I would just stay and listen. So that was my first introduction. I heard the Lord's Prayer. I heard bits about the the Sermon on the Mount and just that was, you know, seeds were planted. So all of this period is seeds are being planted, but I still didn't really know what it all meant. When I got into high school, uh, late in high school, I now we're going back a few years. Okay. I'm a a seven. Well, I was born in the 50s. So the 70s is 60s, 70s, you know, the hippie period. So I am, you know, fast and furious hippie. Uh, Very involved in the the music culture of the time and other things, which will remain nameless, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, attended an awful lot of concerts. That was sort of my God. And then I got involved in the New Age movement, which was very typical for a lot of Jews. Because uh, there's sort of this hole in the heart of Jews who don't quite, you know, they've, they've come in, they've assimilated in this culture that isn't, you know, from their history and then they have this empty spot and they're sort of always searching. So you find a lot of, in those days, you found a lot of Jewish people involved in the new age movement. So I got, you know, I, I was exploring, you know, Hinduism and Confucianism and uh, you just name the ism. And I was investigating, trying to figure it out. Okay. Is there a God? So yeah. I would always kind of go back to my roots that I, you know, I knew all of the stories of the Old Testament, I, you know, we had read them as a family, and of course, attending synagogue on the high holidays. So that was very steeped in my understanding, but I couldn't seem to, to connect the things. So uh, fast forward a little bit, I um, dropped out of university, I couldn't stand it, it made no sense. <laughs> so I just had a 14 pound backpack and headed off to Europe. So this is like late, late 70s. And I travel, I lived out of that backpack for probably about five years. I spent a lot of time in in Europe, all around Europe and and the Middle East and into Africa. And I came home for a brief stint, couldn't stand it. And then I headed off down to uh, Central and South America, Mexico, and did all that. So there was, you know, I am the uh, quintessential wandering Jew, but all of this. (laughs) Is really this sort of search, like for who I am, where do I fit? You know, none of it really connected for me. I did spend some time in Israel in 1974, um, about six months. I lived there, and I was on a kibbutz, kibbutz de Ganya Aleph, which was at the the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And I met a man there who was a Christian, and he he's really the first person I can remember sort of giving me the gospel. Okay. And we spent time in Jerusalem, and we walked the Stations of the Cross, and yeah, I thought it was all pretty cool. Um, and I, I just, again, I just sort of filed it away. So that was a was a very unique time to be in Israel right after the Yom Kippur War, and so you could see remains, you know, bombed out tanks and stuff everywhere you went. I had friends up in the Golan Heights where the bulk of the war had taken place, and uh, you know. There was just, there was something about that time and unique for me being there in Israel. And when I went back many years later, gosh, I think about 20 some years later, I couldn't even believe the level of growth that had happened in the country. Like it was night and day. Yeah. So I came back to, to, I went back to Canada and I was bored out of my mind. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, so I, I had I mentioned that I had gone down to uh, to Central America and at some point, uh, well, I came back, I went to San Francisco for a period, which is kind of a funny, funny story. I, I was broke and uh, friends of mine, I needed to find a job. And this friend of mine put me in touch with this gal who needed somebody to work in her store, believe it or not, selling Chinese kimonos. That's what I did like. What on earth? <laughs> it's this nice Jewish girl in San Francisco selling Chinese kimonos. But San Francisco was the city of my birth. So I, re- I wanted to go back there and, and see. And eventually a friend and I left there and moved to a place called Taos, New Mexico. Because it was considered to be a high place, kind of the opposite side of Tibet. So it was this sort of special hippie place that everybody went. There were communes all over the place, and so there actually turned out to be quite a group of Jews that lived lived in that area as well. And so, thing, this is when things start to really move for me. At one point, while I was living in Taos, I went down to this place called the Quinby Center, which was in Alamogordo, south of uh, south of Taos, a few hours to get my aura balanced because I thought, well, this, you know, this is what I needed to do. I was confused at the time. I didn't know where I was going. So this guy, you know, has these crystals waving over my body and I'm trying to flatten out the energy chakras, etc. But he tells me that in my last lifetime, because they, of course, they believe in reincarnation, that I was a disciple of Christ in Israel and I followed I followed Christ, and then somehow I ended up following Peter to the catacombs of Rome. I mean, it was just this whole (laughs) fantastical story. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So when I got back to Taos, I started. I took out all these books out of the library on the life of Peter and Paul and all all these Mm -hmm. things. And at that point, somebody gave me a a Bible. It's really the first time that I had a Bible with the Old and New Testament in it, because I had only read the Tanakh. And so I read the whole thing cover to cover in about a week. And wow. when I got to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, that was my moment, if you will, when I went, this is, this is the Messiah. This is the one who can change the hearts and souls of, of mankind. After I've been through all of this new age philosophies that just ended in really disastrous, in disaster, it was not... I didn't get anywhere with it. And I just, it was that moment where you knew that you knew that you knew. And I think mm-hmm. really everybody has that moment. So at the time in Taos, there was a new pastor had come to town. He, uh, his name was Andrew Bush and he was a hippie as well. <laughs> and he started a church. Now this is what the Assemblies of God. And that church just for, because of, of his background, It just flourished and all of there was this movement of God in northern New Mexico in the late 70s in which all these ex-hippies came to faith in Yeshua the Messiah and to Jesus. And so all of us were in this church and all of us had no idea what we were doing. And here's Andrews leading us. Right. So uh, about a week after I had been saved, he Gave me the I was to be responsible for the youth. I'm barely older than they are, but now I am their teacher.
1: Yeah. So
0: I taught them the only thing I knew, which was the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the the Torah. So I taught them all about the festivals and things like that. And I always said, these kids didn't know how good they had it. Right. And uh, let me back up because there's an important part of the story as well. Uh, Again, so I was living with a friend. Outside uh, of town. And we were involved with a group, um, Baba Ramdas, I'm sure you don't remember, but, and Timothy Leary, these were the, the drug gurus back in the 70s. And Baba Ramdas had gotten involved with a community in, that worshiped the God, the Indian God, the Hindu God, um, Hanuman. And Hanuman was a monkey God, okay, and the God of traveling and all this. And they had commissioned a statue be made of that god in sri lanka in india and they were going to bring it over to the united states and so the ashram where the where the the statue would be placed was just down the road from where i lived and we were friends with the people who owned the property Mm -hmm. so they there was this whole fanfare that the statue came in it stopped in san francisco and then they got it out to taos And here was this glorious festive day. We all went out to the ashram, beautiful blue skies in September. I remember it clear as a bell, all the, you know, prayer flags everywhere. we were having the great meal and they they brought out this box wooden crate and the wooden crate was on a a um, uh, on a cart. And they began to to just take off the wooden slats. And then all of a sudden everybody was standing so you know, with mouths open, abated bated breath, waiting to see the statue. And all of a sudden, you know, the last piece comes off and, and there's this white marble statue of a monkey god wearing this orange outfit, holding this scepter. <laughs> it was totally yeah. bizarre. And literally everybody that was there bowed down to that statue. And my friend Jane and I were standing there and we looked at each other. And I heard as clear as a bell, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And as I share my story, I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt. Had that, had I bowed down to that monkey God at that moment, this would not be my life now. That Mm -hmm. that was my moment. That was the line in the sand. You cross over that. You're not coming back. And Mm -hmm. so that was, you know, that was my line in the sand. That was my moment. And uh, I didn't bow down. And then all the other things began to ensue. And I, uh, I really grew, um, now it's Assemblies of God Church, but I, I really grew there. And so for me, as I began to read the New Testament, I saw all these connections with the Torah and the Tanakh all, and the prophets and, the, and the, you know, the, um, uh, the Proverbs and Psalms, et cetera. Like it all just connected for me. And so I began to teach and explore these things because I could see the relationship. And there would be expressions in the New Testament that I understood instinctively because of how I grew up. Of course, yeah. other people didn't have the context. And so that really, I just began my journey. has been a 42-year journey of trying to see the the, the seamless story of of the, the gospels, of, of how of, of God restores mankind from Genesis to Revelation yeah. as it, it all connects. No, there's no separation. And so that was, that was my mission to learn and to grow in, in that area. So around that time, uh, I guess it's the early eighties, I got married and my husband and I, we have two daughters. They're now in their thirties. And I determined that I was going to homeschool them because the school system in Taos, New Mexico at the time was just terrible. So I was homeschooling them. But so that enabled me to do some research as well, which I would do in the afternoons and and my husband, I had a business that we ran. So got the girls through. In the meantime, I went back to school because I had dropped out. So I finished my degree because they. The state had threatened that if you didn't have a bachelor's degree, you wouldn't be able to homeschool. And I said, "Over my dead body!" So I did whatever I was going to do. And so I got my degree. Eventually, I went on. I got a master's and then um, a in Doctor of Ministry in Hebraic Studies and Christianity, which which came much later. So through the 90s, I'm you know teaching in the Assemblies of God. We did move over to the um, four square denomination for a bit. And I was the director of Bible Institute there for a while. Uh, Kids are growing. i was also very involved in politics at the time. So I served on the board uh, Well, I was the president of the Taos Christian Home Educators Group and was connected to the state. So I would testify sometimes in in our uh, legislature about homeschooling issues and stuff. So I was very involved. I didn't, you know, I was involved politically as well at the time. So Fast, fast forward into the 2000s, I was, when I went to school and finished my min. I connected with a my, who turned out to be my academic advisor. And she had this idea about, you know, this is before we could just record videos and throw them up on the internet. Yeah. She she felt this, this was the forefront of it. And she thought, well, let's see if we can put together some programs and we took it down to, um, the station in Texas, Odessa Midland area, God's Learning Channel, and Mm -hmm. we presented our idea, and they took us on and gave us a slot on the network, so we had a program, and so we would kind of switch off, but then, I guess they really liked my program, they invited me on to their flagship show, which was called Light of the Southwest, and it was a two-hour in the evening thing, so I I had never been on TV, okay, (laughs) so freaking out so what i did i studied the set and i studied where everybody looked and what they wore for weeks so when i went into the studio and sat down everything looked really familiar to me and i i kind of got a sense of how it worked so i just jumped in and the hosts um alan and tommy cooper at the time they weren't the greatest interviewers in fact i mean they they hardly asked questions the reality was, you were going in there and you're going to talk for two hours. So, wow. you better yeah. know that you yeah. know. So, that was my first, you know, that was my first rodeo on TV. And uh, after that, I guess they got so much mail that they gave me my own slot on God's Learning Channel. So, I did that for a number of years. And then I just, you know, things reached out. I, I worked in uh, Sun broadcasting here in New Mexico, did some shows there was on brad tv out of korea for some time the hebraic roots network formed and i uh, actually still am on there with shows and teachings and then i work mostly right now with uh, israel tv network they're out of amarillo so i go there regularly and film for them and about well it's going to be two years no three years now 2019 whatever that is two years two and a half years uh, a friend of mine was uh, involved politically with a group. They were trying to form a pact to help uh, conservative Christian candidates uh, for the 2020 20, uh, 20 election. So mm-hmm. I ended up being invited down to Mar-a-Lago uh, twice and um, you know met some of the movers and shakers. I actually got to meet Dennis Prager, which was really a highlight for me, love that guy. And I actually, uh, they, there was a um, uh, what do you call it (laughs) just rabbi with a congregation there and he invited some of us you know in to speak so one of the main teachers didn't show up Uh, she was trying to get there but there was a thunderstorm and they couldn't land the plane so they they come up to me and they said well you're going to have to fill her slot now she was an expert on on zionism and jewish zionism and she had met people from theodore herzl's family from that family out of the 1800s, you know, emigrated to Israel, and they wanted me to fill her slot, I'm going, no way, I could talk for two minutes on Zionism, right, it was not my area, and I'm sitting in this chair with this, you know, august rabbi, and uh, do you know who Mark Biltz is from up north in the Pacific Northwest, he has a congregation up there, El Shaddai, And they're all prepared, and they all have their notes, and I'm sitting there, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just, I'll wait to see what they say, and then I'll kind of, you know, add on to that, because I didn't really know where to go. And so the rabbi gets, Rabbi Feldman gets up, and he looks at me, and he goes, well, ladies first. (laughs) So I'm sitting there going, oh, Lord, I don't even know. So I just started at the beginning with the story of Adam, and then basically shared the story of really Israel's, you know, when they're in the camp, when they're outside the camp, the story of their exile and return. I just went through the whole history of the Tanakh, of Israel's exile return, and just explained that, you know, this is the greatest example of of Zionism, of Israel's, you know, constantly returning to the land. And yeah. shared a little bit about the Torah and wisdom and things like that. So It turned out to be a huge hit. I mean, I had all these people coming up to me all day going, wow, this is great. I want to hear more so that, you know, it kind of really uh, it opened the door to some other things. But what I had started at that time was something called on fire prayer, because I really believed that 2020 was going to be this very important election. And we were praying for, gosh, 19 months or so for election integrity. That would, you know, I would send out a text message weekly to all the teams. We had probably two or three thousand people that had joined in to pray, and so every week that's what we were praying for. And of course, 2020 came, and I went, "What? (laughs) Uh, We've been praying for election integrity, and none of this worked out the way I thought that it was going to." But then, in the end, you have to say, "Well, it did, because it exposed." the boil broke and exposed a wound that none of us had any idea. So um, we just, we kind of continued on. I haven't been as diligent in it because I was finishing writing up this book, uh, the third in my series, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark from Chaos uh, to Order. And I really was just really focusing in on that. And I thought it was just sort of a serendipitous time because this book turns out I mean it really kind of fits where we were now about three years ago I'm going to say I did a a video series called Bonhoeffer from tyranny to freedom because I could see it it was coming you know it was coming fast and it was before all the COVID stuff and it was a nine-part series and we began to air it on Israel TV network and other places I was just calling people like Uh, bonhoeffer said you know silence in the face of evil is itself evil you cannot be silent anymore you can't not do anything we you know we're called we have you know we are there's a thing called divine providence working with human agency to to change the environment to make things good for everyone And, and bonhoeffer of course he was part of the plot to kill hitler assassinate hitler and he ended up being hung before the allies even got there. But his writings, The Cost of Discipleship, are profound and are much needed today. So I've always been one that's tried to integrate the culture and the context of our time with the Bible and going back to the ancient world as well and kind of pulling it all together to sort of make sense of the world in which we live. So. Here I am today. I just published the third book, and I'm trying, you know, to get the word out everywhere I can. And uh, hopefully, it's uh, it's a book that really ministers to people at, at this time. So that's kind of the story.
1: Yeah, wow, that's incredible. Um, and uh, it definitely gives some insight to your your giftedness in, in teaching. It's clear when you when you read the book. There are so many points where I thought, wow, man, um, you know, you are able to make connections. Between, you know, what's happening here at the Ark, all across the Scripture, uh, pointing to Christ, you know, pointing to our application, and it's uh, it's really pretty incredible. And as you shared your story, you can kind of see throughout um, as you began to teach even the youth, you know, at that first right. Assembly of God Church, just how people respond to your teaching. Um, so I th- man, I think that's that's awesome. So this is the. The book that we're going to talk about today is the third in the series. Correct. Uh, tell me a little bit about what prompted you to start the first book uh, and what prompted you uh, to write this third one.
0: So I would say about 10 years ago, I began what what, what happens with us in, in Christianity is we get locked into the, the weeds and we focus in on you know the minutia of Scripture. We, we mm-hmm. just get tied there and i would say you know sort of we we sort of say that the gospel message that you know jesus loves you uh, he saved you from your sin and you're going to heaven and that's sort of the end of the story and yeah. and we just we don't pull back and look at the big picture and so i i think i was guilty of that to a certain degree because i would study certain areas you know i did a lot of teaching back in the 90s on the festivals and things like that but it suddenly hit me the, the profound, I mean, I had studied the temple, the structure, the ceremonies, how things were used. You know, I understood that because that, I think I started that journey like 1990, but I never viewed it from 40,000 feet. And mm. suddenly I began to realize that the, the, really the structure of the Bible was a temple structure. And it just, it's like it hit me one day. And so then I began to approach the scriptures kind of differently. And then I realized that I, I was not going to understand this. I understood it from my Jewish background and from the work that I had done. Most of the rabbis now, the commentators, uh, rabbinic commentators, tend to start in the Middle Ages and go forward with the ones like Moses Maimonides and Rashi, who was a little earlier. But they And we have the Mishnah from the Second Temple period. But... I didn't find any of them really addressing the ancient Near East world and customs and traditions, et cetera. And I realized if I had any hope of understanding what temples were and how they function, I was going to have to go back more into the ancient Near East world. Now, I had done some in the 90s when I finished my bachelor's. I'd done some historical work in ancient Babylon and stuff in Assyria. I always had a fascination with ancient history. So this now it was time to put that together with what I understood about the temple theology. And I began to read a lot of different scholars and it's just the the light bulb went on. And so now that became my focus and it was just so enriching and I was so excited and so much in the New Testament related to that. And then if you have any hope of understanding why Yeshua called himself a temple, and in three days I'll raise up this temple the spirit would. And then Paul talking about you are the temple of the holy spirit. Well, we just throw that out like it's crumbs and I'm going you you have to go back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 1 if you have any hope of understanding what on earth Paul is talking about. So we're not running around these little temples. It you know, it's in a greater context. So I just began to do more and more and more research and my brain was just stuffed and I was doing so much teaching and I thought somehow i have got to write a book and put all this in there well i realized that if i started writing the book was going to be probably 2, pages. pages <laughs> yeah. nobody's going to read it you yeah. have to be able to make this palpable to so your folks mm-hmm. in the pews and yeah. so i i thought well i'm just i'm going to have to do this in you know smaller chunks and so i took it down obviously you start in Genesis 1 one and, and Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, which is really a temple building story. And um, I, you know, I had to chop out a lot of stuff because I was determined to keep the book at around 200 pages because people don't read books that are longer than that. And yeah, yeah. I had to figure out a way to engage the audience because I didn't want it to be all scholarship. Yeah. It, it had to be some because I had to show how I came to my conclusions, but there had to be there had to be other dimension of it. So I kind of wrestled with that for a while. And I realized that I could describe ceremonies in the temple as if you were there. And I could just um, take some license in writing what we call creation uh, creative nonfiction to be able to introduce people, to think about the, the scriptures in a different way. Now, my stories are fictional made up, but the backdrop is all accurate. All the historical information is, is completely accurate, but it was a way for me to, to be able to, to show things that I'm thinking without having to cite sources and without people thinking I'm crazy. So I integrated it all in the book. Now that was good, but then I thought, well, you have to go a step further because there's no point in doing any of this. If there isn't a practical application for people today, like what's the point? So that sort of became the synthesis of the books, which with some scholarship, with some, Uh, fictional vignettes, I call them, and with -hmm. with application for today. So that the first book, I will admit, (laughs) is more challenging than the other ones, because I think as after 42 years of studying, I just was kind (laughs) of pouring it all out. And for a lot of people, it it wasn't their wheelhouse. And then and of course, writing about creation. I mean, are we kidding? No one's ever been there. We don't know. This is very esoteric, (laughs) very ethereal. But yeah. once I got to the garden, I'm going, okay, now this can be more concrete. Everybody understands what a garden is. And so that will that will be easier. And then this book, I and everybody tells me, oh, this one's the easiest for them to read and makes the most sense to them. But I think once they read this, they can go back and read the creation book. And yeah. then it'll be easier. So that's kind of, and I'm a big, I didn't want to write books that you read it you're done it goes on the shelf and you never look at it again yeah i wanted it to be a reference that you always had and so of course i have pages and pages of in the bibliography of reference material that if people want to investigate in more detail uh, they have you know here it's all laid out for them so by the time i got to the noah book i could i mean i saw in the creation story the the, the making and building of a temple And then in the garden book, I I saw the concept of kingship and how important that was, the kingdom and kingship. But when I got to the Noah story, I think it all sort of coalesced to where I I would say, I understand better, (laughs) not that I understand at all, that everything is about creational order. It's about the restoration of creation. And so all of that, the biggest, big, big, big picture is the story of the restoration of all of creation from genesis to revelation
1: so wow yeah and so once again like i said you even just describing how you wrote the books you you're teaching how to write a good book um, and you're so gifted to, to, to be able to have that foresight to see because i agree i do a lot of reading and that was one thing that i really appreciate about your book as i mentioned earlier there is a lot in a very small in just a few pages yeah which I appreciate as as a reader um yeah why waste time (laughs) yeah yeah I don't want to read a whole long book to to get to kind of like one point
0: the other thing that writers do is they just you know they fill up the empty spaces with scripture like we don't Mm -hmm. need massive amounts of scripture to make your point
1: yeah Yeah, one or
0: two is good And I'm a firm believer, keep it simple, you know, keep it brief, get to the point. I'm really one of those people. I just, I don't do well with people just, and I, you know, forgive me, who, you know, can't just say it. Like when I go to a meeting and somebody talks and they, they say the point and just keep saying it over and over in a different way. I'm just get to the point.
1: Well, you get it. You absolutely get it. And I, like I said, I appreciate that as, as a reader, I, I, you know, cause you're, you're so right. I, I read so many books and I think, man, you, you spent four chapters to preface the the fifth that, you know, I just give me the fifth. I'm good yeah. with just that one. That's all I need. Um, I don't need the first four. Um, Yeah. And you're right. You know, sometimes they'll, they'll hold off on the punchline and I, I love that you, you hit us with the punchline right from the get. So you, you, your preface was this vignette and it was, um you hit with with, with so much and, and it just grabs the attention. And right off the bat, you're like, okay, I'm intrigued. There's so much in here. And then you yeah. begin to unpack that. That's um that's so refreshing as, as a reader, as opposed to let me sprinkle something and then just spend the entire book waiting to get to the last chapter, which is the punchline, and I'm disappointed because I could have gotten that right at the beginning, or right. you know, it's it's now a disappointment because you led up to something big and 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 now, you know, it's just one yeah, more so point.
0: I like doing that with the, the prologue. And it's particularly in the in the Noah book. It really, I laid out everything. Everything that okay. I was going to be talking about was in the prologue story, only it was done sort of fanciful. And, and mm-hmm. again, I, you know, inserted my own <laughs> ideas in it. So that, you know, I had debated whether I should have that at the beginning or the end. And I thought, well, no, I'm just going to throw it out there. And, you know, that maybe if, when they're done, they'll go back and reread it and see how all the elements that follow were were right there laid out for them in like the first five pages.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I appreciated that because, you know, sometimes people don't, you know, something just skip the intro, the prologue. They, they want to go straight to chapter one. Um, and so I'm kind of used to having material in in the prologue that's not absolutely necessary so when I started reading this prologue I thought oh wow we're just diving right in uh and I loved it and so and and it piqued my interest all of a sudden I had all these questions and now I could look for those answers as I read the book yeah so uh I think you achieved that um so
0: thank you because I needed to hear that you never know I mean no you you don't know how people are receiving it
1: And, and and you said it well because what you're teaching here in this book are some very deep truths and it's intimidating for someone that's not really a reader to kind of just dive in but you make it accessible I think to to anybody and like you said it's so short that um it's also not intimidating you can get in there uh and, and you can you can read it in a relatively short amount of time yeah. and if you want to I get did know- the
0: audible and it was you know literally five hours which is really yeah. nothing
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, Cool. So let's I I wanted to kind of start there with with that prologue because you, you know, I wanted to know how much of that was sort of that creative license um, and how how much that you you think, um, you know, is was what actually took place. So, you know, you um, maybe just give us like a a summary of of the prologue as far as what it was like, because you basically put us right there in the boat with Noah. So, um, you know, what do you think that uh, was actually like? I guess just give us a, an opening into, into this subject.
0: So the prologue was written over a period of time. I didn't just sit down and write it in a couple of days. Yeah. And that's because as I was writing it, I was reading all these scholars at the mm. same time. And so I might write something go, well, that's not quite what I wanna say. So I was trying to get the mood and the pattern, and just what the, what were the scholars saying about the story? So I, uh, when I first began to write uh, Noah's Ark story, I thought eh, it's going to be a piece of cake because there's hardly any books out there on Noah. And literally there aren't, like there's virtually no books that scholars wrote that is solely about Noah's Ark. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but then I started finding papers and papers and papers. And I think I had about a hundred. Uh, and my favorite author in all of this is Michael Morales. His book, uh, his book, the, Tran- uh, the Tabernacle prefigured, like it just blew my mind. And I had read it for the Garden book, but when I went, oh well, this is this is for Noah. So there's uh, all kinds of elements in his his book, and he's his book is filled with bibliography. I mean, he cites every every one, everything. So it was great. So, I began to get the sense that all of pretty well all of the um, scholars were on the same page and that the ark was not a boat, that it was a temple pattern and it was a mobile temple. So, with that in mind, that's how I approached the prologue to try to yeah. introduce that idea and to in- insert the idea that, that Noah functioned as a king priest that everything about the Ark looked like a temple with the three levels that... So for example, in the second temple period, the temple there, there was a special inner place called the dormitory of the priests, where the priests who came up to serve for the week slept there. And there was a whole process in the morning, who got up when and unlocked what door and all, all that, that, that they went through. So I, the, the priests had to be married in the temple. It was very interesting. Uh, So, for example, the high priest, if he if something happened to his wife before he went in to do the Yom Kippur service, he had to find another wife. He could not perform the service of Yom Kippur without being married. So I I thought, well, it's very interesting because we have Noah and then we have the sons and they're all married right in there. So I just uh, I kind of wanted to include that in there, the idea of priesthood and what was going on. And then, when I was reading, looking at the story, and I'm going through it in Hebrew, the where it says that there was a window in the roof. Um, yeah. The, yeah. the Hebrew word isn't window, it's Zohar, which means an illumination. So now there's this idea of God illuminating him, you know, his presence into the ark. I mean, it was everything temple. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And then, of course, reading all these various scholars on, on sort of the waters of chaos and the flood and what that meant and uh, descriptions of the arc that I, I sort of found in some of the scholarly writings with the pitch and the wood and the pitch and all that sort of thing. So it just, it came together, but it took a while. It was not, uh, I would say, months putting hmm. a prologue together. It probably took me longer to write the prologue than the rest of the book.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's how much time I spent on trying to make it be just right.
1: Yeah. Well, it makes sense. So maybe we'll um, work our way back up. But one of the sort sort of uh, surprising things that I read was you talked about Genesis being written in, in a lot of what we now read in, in our, our Bibles in the canon being written during the exile, which yeah. is something I had never really heard before. So, you know, traditionally Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Um, and in my mind, I've always thought of that, you know, a lot, a lot of that already being written down before the exile. So you know, who would you uh, credit the First five or the book of Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, too. Um, you know, what, what did we have coming uh, up to the exile?
0: Well, I don't think we know,
1: uh, first yeah. of all,
0: but uh, and and there's a number of scholars in this area too. Peter ends and is one in, in particular that I, you know, read an, an article that he had written and I went, Wow, well, bingo, yes, of course, that makes complete sense because you can see. If, if we understand what exile is, you know, that is the um, removal of of the people from the presence of God. Well, hey, the garden story right there is the story of exile. And and, and as I'm reading, I'm thinking, hmm, it looks to me like you can see elements of the exile that were in in those stories. And then, if you think about it, you know, and you understand when when the uh, the Tanakh, well, and the Genesis story would have been codified, was probably when they returned from exile, those who did from Babylon. Well, this is thousands of years later, and the story has been handed down over and over. There's no way you're not going to have that focus. And so, if if you think about them writing at that time, I mean, they lost everything. We, I, we do not appreciate when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple and hauled them all off, losing you know, their nation, their monarchy, all of their institutions, their religious and civil institutions, their identity, they lost everything. And we, we can't process that. So now they have to figure out a way, how do we tell the story where we restore everything? And so I I would see in the stories, there's just little elements. So one of the examples I use, so here they are You know, land on Mount Ararat waiting for the water to recede. And then a dove comes with a leaf, olive leaf. It doesn't say an olive branch. It says an olive leaf in its mouth. And you're like, okay. Now we've had no indication of anything related (laughs) to an olive leaf. But if you look in in the writings and you understand some of the commentary, after the exile, you would see that King David was always associated with the olive tree. So that mm-hmm. just stuck out to me. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a, to me, and we could argue, but to me, this is, is, t- is saying that the restoration of the kingship, of the divine kingship, of the monarchy, of all of Israel is, is hinted at here. That's what they needed to know that their king would be restored to them and that the king King David in his line. So wow. I could see to me this there was an element in that of the restoration of the house of Israel and the restoration of the dynasty of King David, which ultimately comes from Jesus Yeshua the Messiah. It's there's a reason we keep going back to him being the son of David. I mean, he's not called the son of Abraham or anything else, and Jacob or whatever. He is called yeah. the son of David because we're dealing with the restoration of, of the line of the kings, because I would argue the entire Bible is about the story of the line of the kings from Adam to the last Adam. Hmm. So that makes sense.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's one thing that sort of blew my mind. I never really thought about it from that lens, but certainly at that moment in time during the exile, we look at as you said, the, the garden and the flood, and you know, we see that restoration, so it would make sense for, mm-hmm. for that needed to be uh, expressed and written, so, so that there would be hope um, of yes. that restoration, so absolutely, so really, really pretty beautiful, um,
0: and Christians just don't think about that, you know everything's sort of in, in these little boxed sections. <laughs> Tear mm-hmm. yeah. down the box and see the whole thing integrating. Or thinking about, you know, what what? Again, they have no concept of just how dramatic and how catastrophic was the destruction of the the people and temple and everything. And I'm thinking maybe now in this sort of current environment that perhaps they can consider it better because. In, in some sense, you know, we're about to, in our nation, we're about to lose everything. And so maybe, you know, maybe they could see it more clearly.
1: Yeah, and you're right. Uh, maybe you can comment on this, but it seems like a lot of what we see in Sunday schools, we, we get the Bible stories in isolation. And so we yeah. hear yeah. one story and we hear one lesson about what has happened, as opposed to really a lot of those stories typify, a much larger, grander story exactly. pointing to Christ, and and we, exactly. we can miss that if we're so yeah. stuck here and thinking, oh well, the lesson is, you know, lo- you know, share. And, and of course, we can get that out of, of one small story, um, but we should be able, to, like you said, get up forty thousand and see, okay, this is pointing to Christ. There's there's a, a framework here, and we can see, yes, themes like you mentioned redemption being repeated. Um, all pointing to Christ. So uh, that, that's kind of what, what you're going to get reading your books is, is some of these very profound, larger uh, concepts that uh, can point us to Christ. Um, let me see. You talked about the image of God. What does it mean to be uh, the image of God?
0: So it's like image bearers? Yes. Yeah, that kind. Con- yeah, and this is, uh, this is something N.T. Wright, he's, he's, I, I really enjoy him as a scholar because he's, he's able to bridge the gap as well between scholarship and the folks. He, he does it better than a lot. So he's always talking, of, well, not always, but he talks about their image bearers and their vocation. And of course, the, the vocation of kings in the ancient world was uh, they were called horticulturalists. They worked mm-hmm. their gardens every temple pattern had a garden. Now, if we go back anciently, the, the purpose of that is that the king was responsible to feed his people, to feed his subjects. So the idea of gardening, growing food, you know, to, to feed the people, which is interesting because, of course, with a garden, you, keep, you need to keep harvesting the seed to be able to grow more food. What was unique uh, in the ancient cultures, so the, the gods basically enslaved humans, in order to grow food for them. (laughs) And then we see in God's economy that he is growing food Well, he's using his image bearers to grow food, if you will, to feed the world. So I see the image bearer role, vocation as gardener, kings to go out and feed the world. I mean, this is exactly what Yeshua, Jesus said that we yeah. were you know, to bring seed and that seed would grow and then you know continue on so people could live. So the story of his image bearers is to, to uh, partly, of course, to, uh, to participate in the restoring the created order, but of that cre- created order, if you don't eat, you die. <laughs> That's spiritually and physically. And so mm. this is this very important message about feeding people. And we see it in very practical, physical ways. And of course, we also see it sort of in our spiritual lives, if you will.
1: Yeah, we can sort of see where everywhere where Adam failed, Jesus was the, 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 the better Adam, the, the last Adam. who right. was able to, to do everything that uh, Adam couldn't, um, even though that was Adam's calling. So it, it, it paints a, a picture when we look back at Adam, and really when we look back at, our, at, at, really at ourselves and our calling as image bearers, you know, we are to be like Christ, and, and that kind of sheds light on what that looks like.
0: Yes, um, and so if, if Adam, he essentially is the first gardener, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so now you, when you jump forward to the last Adam, you, see, I mean, Yeshua's always taught, it seems like, always talking about food, <laughs> growing, yeah. vineyard, yeah. right. kings, you know, There's so much about that, but there's a reason um, because that is the most basic of human needs and sustenance is to eat.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's awesome. Um, Leviathan, do you see this as a a literal sea monster dragon or is this figurative or both?
0: Uh, I tend. So this is a hard area. the ancient Near East culture, the way they describe things is not the way we do. So yeah. we look at things in very material, substantive way, and they look at things on how it works and functions. Yeah. So the the message in the ancient world would be more of a functional message, or and so what when they are uh, when they come to that place of what it does and how it functions then they describe it using more symbolic type language, more metaphorical language. When we, you know, say look at a tree and I'm going to describe it to you, I'm going to, you know, explain, you know, the trunk, its color, its details, its size, same with the leaves. That's not how they do it. So. We can't make a blanket statement there. It, it, I, I, it, it's, one must be careful, because people will always ask me, well, is it literal or is it metaphorical? And I say, yes. <laughs> because mm-hmm. the stories, the people, the environment, the places, those are all historical pieces of information. But the way it's been presented is in a more of a symbolic way. So I would suggest that Leviathan, Leviathan, is the same, that it has a function and a purpose. And uh, um, and so it's described that way, and so that's the better thing for us to to look at instead of saying is this this literal sea monster like Loch Ness you know uh, in the yeah. water ready to you know to attack and so then we we do see Leviathan connected in a number of places, of course, to the to the dragon and stuff, but. Typically, it's associated with you know ruling kings over empires, you know, the pharaoh, or you know take take your pick an Assyrian king, etc. Yeah. That because it, it, again, it's what does it do? What's its function, and what is the purpose of this?
1: Yeah. So it kind of leads. I, I don't know if that leaves room for this next question, but that was actually gonna be my next question: if the flood, you know, was figurative or or literal, and so you know, yes. where is? <laughs> Uh, You know, how much how much are we talking that that we're reading is figurative and how much is. And this is
0: and this is difficult with this story because you have your uh, creationists, man, they are dogmatic. Uh, You know, you ain't ever going to argue with them. And and that's entirely possible. Like, I have no problem with that because both can be true. Mm -hmm. So I just say, well, you know that. Yeah, we got flood layers in every. A culture has a flood story and that's good, you know, but I don't personally believe that the Bible's focused on the science of Mm -hmm. Genesis as it is the sort of greater message of recreation and redemption. That's, that's, that's the message. And so it's not really addressing science. So if it's not addressing science now, you know, now how do we approach it? What, and what you'll come to, well, certainly most scholars think, now isn't, is, of course not all, but that there was a particularly bad flood on the Euphrates and Tigris around 28, 2900 BCE. The thing was, there was a flood virtually, you know, it could be every year. Uh, if anyone who right. lives by a river knows and where I am in Northern New Mexico, well central, but up in Northern New Mexico, you know, if we get a lot of snow up in Colorado, we're going to have a raging river come, you know, the Rio Grande is going to be, you know, in the springtime when the snow uh, melts. And so if, and you compound that with maybe there's a lot of rain. So every year was a concern and a worry about floods, especially for the towns that were along the Euphrates River until they were able to build uh, irrigation canals so that these cities could be set back farther and then they weren't as affected. But if you're right on the river, because that's your sustenance, that you need that water and you're worried every spring the snow melt from up in, you know, the Er the Urartu region uh, is going to uh, flood your town and you will be no more. So there was a particularly bad flood in those years, uh, 2800, 2900 BCE. So that was always foremost on their mind. And so they understood what a flood would do. I mean, it devastate and destroy everything. And so they began to associate flooding with armies. That an army would come in and ravage and pillage and destroy and kill the same way a flood does. And so we see some of that language now come to bear in scripture, where these ideas of a flood—it's not talking specifically about a flood, but it is dealing with foreign empires and armies coming against. Uh, the nation of Israel, for example. So again, both can be true at the same time. And this is this thing about this mindset that we have, that it can only be this. (laughs) And it can't be that. And the two are separated. And people are unable to critically think and see two things can be true
1: at the same time. Yeah, that's a a great answer. Um, Because you're right. We see that in, in scripture, that we're seeing a literal event and they use figurative language to talk about what's what's happening. So yes, we can see that the devastation that's happening is talked about in a very figurative way, maybe pointing back to a flood or, or another event, um, or the exodus in Egypt or something like that. Yeah. And so so yeah, you're, you're right. Um, it can be more than one. And it would be best for, for people to, to see both instead of just one or the other because exactly. you're kind of stuck, stuck in just one or the other.
0: Well, you can't um, have a conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, if you say that, that the other side will turn off immediately and you're done.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've
0: done the exact same thing with our politics. You can't even have a conversation. And so you can have two completely different views of something. It's okay. Yeah. And Christians really have to, to work on that. Um, it's it's all right for someone to think differently than you. And it is not your job to change their mind. It's your job to have an, a discussion to where you're both kind of educating one another. And, and maybe your conclusion might change a little and that, you know, that's okay. But we don't seem to be able to even have these kinds of discussions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Um, that's a part of what I love about the show. You know, I, I bring on guests all the time and they have you know, a lot of times the guests, their, their ideas will contradict with each other or, or with mine. Yeah. And I think it's important to to get into those conversations because um, it's going to stretch us and help us to learn and, and grow. Uh, but more than anything, yes. I mean, we, we should just be able to, to, to disagree and, and that'd be okay. Yeah, we don't have to yeah. be right. We don't have to convince everyone else that we're right. Um, it, it's all right. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to ask about the ark. In, in the prologue, you talked about the ark um, being built from the, the, the tree of knowledge. Um, I've heard before that the ark, you mentioned that it's a really more of a temple as opposed to just like a big boat. Um, I've heard that it was actually cubic in shape. Um, so talk more about just like, you know, what, what is the ark and where, where's the connection to the, the tabernacle and the temple?
0: Well, of course, I totally made up the fact that the, that the right. wood from the Ark came from the Tree of Knowledge. I thought that was a good image. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, that, uh, obviously, we have no uh, proof of anything like that. So, of course, uh, anything temple-wise built in the plains of Mesopotamia was going to be made out of stone. Um, they didn't really, they didn't have wood. You know, they didn't, this is the alluvial plain where basically nothing grew. So mm-hmm. uh, so it was unique in which you know, Noah, of course, so you read in the story, I, I did this on purpose. Uh, I had Noah and his, and his father, Lamech, leave uh, the land by the sea, you know, Canaan, the promised land, and move to the area, um, Northern Syria, Turkey, or the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates to to establish themselves there first and that he would take what I you know again made up but the idea of, of Seth took on the role after both Cain and Abel are no longer right. Adam is going to pass down the the responsibility of the garden if you will to Seth and so I just suggest you know there was probably a vineyard. <laughs> we don't know if the garden was a vineyard or what it doesn't tell us. And so I have, uh, on purpose, I have Noah moving to that region to establish himself, um, to establish himself there. And it would make more sense as far as, I mean, let's just look at the boat building thing. I mean, there's forests and trees up north there where Mm -hmm. there's absolutely nothing down south. So he's going to be building anything out of wood. He needs to be where there's wood. Wood. So, and if he's going to be, you know, sailing down the Euphrates, he kind of needs to be near the Euphrates because it's a long way you know, to Jerusalem. So I, I, I put purposely put everything in there to kind of establish that. And uh, so boats at the time, uh, you know, if we think that it might be 2800 BC, I mean, who knows, we don't know. But if it's somewhere in that period, boats at that time were barely 10 feet so now we come in with noah and he's you know and we have we are very specifically giving dimensions of 300 cubits by 50 cubits and anytime you see that in the bible you're going to see temple buildings so we have the cubit thing with the tabernacle with the first temple with um uh, ezekiel the description so there's always measurements numbers it it is interesting i don't remember where i read this but one of the names for the king the messiah not necessarily yeshua but the messiah king the anointed one he was called the measured one and we saw we see in ezekiel's story uh, from 40 to 48 a lot of measuring going on (laughs) it keeps Mm -hmm. talking about measuring and i would submit this is my opinion that the ezekiel temple isn't a future temple in the way we see it it's more a restoration of the creation temple the cosmos that we had in genesis 1 but yet here we're giving all these measurements so now we have measurements going on in the story of noah so clearly to me there's a tie i mean you don't all the places we have measurements are related to the place of god's presence his house and so we see that tie with with the uh with the ark and pretty well you would be hard pressed to find a scholar who didn't think that the ark was a temple pattern again because we don't have yeah, boats yes. that size if the the boat that I don't know if you've been to Kentucky the you know the creation science museum there that they have a life-size boat well, you know, it was like an aircraft carrier on the Euphrates at the time. Can you, I mean, there's no way these people was like, oh my goodness. And so in my mind, I'm going, okay, this thing is ginormous. So what, what is the message here? And so the message to me was a return to God restoring the cosmos. That's how big this thing is. It's just so exaggerated. And so I tie. I began to see that in my mind before I read these articles. And then, as I began to read all these articles, I'm going, "Okay, I didn't, I didn't miss it. This yeah. is what they're saying. That we're talking about a temple pattern. I mean, the ultimate temple pattern that's ginormous we see in Revelation with the 12,000 stadia by 12,000. This thing that you know, the whole world fits in. Again, this concept of the restoration of creation. That's the key." When Yeshua died on the tree was hung on the cross, this wasn't just about, you know, you're going to heaven and you're saved. He was restoring the cosmos. So it takes us back to Genesis chapter one. Everything always takes us back to Genesis chapter one. I don't care what you're reading. It always takes us back there. And this is the restoration of the cosmos. And so this boat that he's Mm -hmm. building is a, because everything had been contaminated by Adam's sin. And then we see that the, um, how this the sin just keeps compounding upon compounding and we describe this period of time leading up to noah building the ark as a time of corruption and violence and all this stuff and you're going wow I think I see that picture right because that's the world always descends to its natural state <laughs> human nature at its worst and so it is the image bearers that elevate the world and so We only have one image bearer, you know, from the story left, who is in the process of elevating the world. How you elevate the world is by building a place for the presence of God, where you can go and worship and show allegiance to him. So it's just a replay, again, of Genesis chapter one.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. made me just think sort of once that ark rested uh, on, on the mountain there, what what became of it of course we're out, everyone's still searching for it today i know um, but, and we'll uh, let them <laughs> yeah yeah you know we see and then we see noah of course with the vineyard and there's um you know we see that new creation imagery we have the, the yeah. rainbow it's a, it's Well, a, so
0: the rest, it, the 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 concept of rest is very important and the first place we see it again genesis 1 into 2. so god rested yeah. he ceased from all his work he rested that is classic language for enthronement of the king. So hmm. rest meant that the king had defeated all the enemies that were gonna come against his empire. And he brought peace rest. And now because of it, a house could be built and he could be enthroned in the house. Hmm. So here we have Noah whose name Nah means rest. And then we have this description of this boat resting on top of the mountain, which of course all temples were located on top of mountains so yeah. this is very much classic ancient near east enthronement language and we don't know this because we don't understand the language so that's very significant and you talk about yeshua coming and saying i will give you rest is you know this is enthronement type language it's everywhere but you know if we have eyes to see so you know who knows whether a boat landed on top of the mountain uh you know i'll reserve that for those guys and they you know if they can get into turkey and go, you know, look in the ice fields on Mount Ararat, have at it, you know, if they find something, yeah. hallelujah, but it doesn't change anything for me and my faith and my relationship and, you know, in the Messiah. Um, again, yeah. two things can be true at the, at the same time. I just think they're going to have a hard time finding
1: it. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, so one thing you, you mentioned in the book that I thought was really, really interesting uh, I had never thought of before, it was uh, you made a connection between the, the king of Tyre and Solomon? Can you talk yeah. a about that?
0: Yeah, that just was one of those I went, hmm, that's very interesting. Because we read, well, of course, most people just tune into that section in, in um, Ezekiel 28, I believe it's in 28,
1: 2012,
0: yeah. I think. And uh, or is it yeah, they don't read the 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 what's leading up to that and the king of tire, I mean obviously there's a real king of Tyre, there's a real Tyre, and so there's a real king, and it was a very prosperous going and blowing place. So I get that, and and I would never discount that. But yeah. you know, when you read that about and and clearly that story about the the this person who we identify in modern Christian circles as Lucifer the bad guy is thrown off this mountain but you see the description of someone who looks like a high priest wearing you know the breastplate with the yeah, stones yeah. and all that and it talks about eden and eden was a mountain it wasn't a flat plain um well it was mountain imagery and so when when i read it you, when you read it you go well it doesn't really it's not i don't it, it's nothing to do with lucifer this is this is adam and his sin <laughs> Then I I read I went back to reread the whole story and I and I was doing a lot of work on Solomon because it's important Solomon's the one who built the first temple once they were stable in the land defeated their enemies David you know took the hit now Solomon builds the temple and I the one of the things I was fascinated with Solomon was you know the size of his harem <laughs> that's always. a puzzle to me i mean like we got a thousand women here so i was just doing all this work on solomon and as i was writing about him i mean he was the number one arms dealer on planet earth at the time and you see how wealthy he'd become and he began to abuse his people and enslave them to build you know monuments to himself and supposedly to yahweh if you will and then i went back and reread that whole section i thought wow okay i see even though I know there's a real king of Tyre and stuff, but I'm just seeing this description, looks an awful lot like Solomon. And so of course Solomon's in the line of the kings. And there was a time in which the, the office of king and, and priest were one in the same, king and high priest. Then of course they're separated and we see the separation with Moses and Aaron. But it just struck me that that was a possibility. So I threw that out there, um, knowing you know that's a hit or a miss. But yeah, I'm careful to just say, well, perhaps, well, maybe. I suggest without being dogmatic, because who on earth knows? Yeah. But the Bible does deal so much with kingship that it just st- struck me that there was a connection between the two.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I read uh, Mark Blitz. He has a, a book about the Antichrist where he uh, Sort of parallels, um, kind of our idea of Antichrist with Solomon, and so it's a, it's really interesting. So I'd kind of like been primed. I thought that was a I thought that was an interesting insight there. Um, so yeah, you talked about Ezekiel's temple and how you don't believe that's a future temple. Um, tell me a little bit more about you thought that was the restoration of a spiritual temple, which is pointing us to a restoration of the cosmos is that correct
0: yeah i'm not i'm not a big fan of the word spiritual because i don't think any of us even understand what that means so i tend not to use it too much so you know one of the things we saw with the with the ark and with the tabernacle was this idea of this mobile place of the presence of god that the the presence of god is on the move Um, and the god wants his image bearers to extend his kingdom over the whole earth that's our job and of course we see that israel failed on many occasions to to do what he had called them to do and so it's it's like his presence is in the ark his presence is is in the tabernacle his his throne and they are moving out because he's like you're gonna move this baby out and expand territory, whether you like it or not. No, I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. But uh, so there's this idea of this, this movement, mobile, uh, impermanent, if you will, because we see the tabernacle is not a permanent thing. And we see the, the Ark of Noah is not a permanent thing until of course they get to, uh, on Zion, they will build the, the second temple. And so I see the Ezekiel picture and and actually, I've just begun. This is sort of, I think, going to be my next area. I, I'm going to try to unpack the Book of Ezekiel, and mm. uh, but from from the big picture view, because there's some scholars have done Yeoman's work on Ezekiel, and I'm not going to, you know, go verse by verse. Nothing like that. I don't write like that. But yeah. we see in chapter one, in chapter three, and eight, and ten, this very bizarre description of this thing with the wheels within the wheels and all these living creatures and stuff and there's been more weird stuff written about that and I am not one given to (laughs) that that world I tend to be a very practical person so I'm always looking for the practical meaning of things now that can all mean something and you know, I, I get there's a world beyond and all that, but I just, it's not me. So I don't write that way, I don't think that way. So yeah. I started to think about, it seemed to me that what we are describing here is either a the a temple picture or a, a specifically the Ark of the Covenant on the move, a mobile Ark of Covenant like we see when the children of Israel are carrying it. Of course, it would always go first when they cross over the waters, and that's a whole nother thing with the ancient world and waters. And so I saw it more in those terms of moving the throne of God across the earth. And so if you're, if you're looking at the big picture back in Genesis one of the, of the cosmos and the restoration of the cosmos. And so in the, co- the cosmos is described as heaven, earth, and sea. And so God established his throne in the center. Like we see that in the garden. That's, it tells us in the center of the garden are two trees. So in the center of the cosmos, if you will, is earth. And that's, the, that's going to be the place of his throne. Now, you know, where on earth? I don't know. But it, that's not really the point. So as he's just restoring the cosmos, the center of the cosmos is earth. And so I see that he's moving his spirit, his presence across the earth, to, to take and expand territory for his kingdom. And so mm-hmm. the purpose of the Ezekiel temple is the same thing. and then the vehicle here with the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, moving out before the people. And you know again, this is opinion here because you know who knows? And I'm not going to get into an argument with, with those who believe it. I mean some believe it's a past temple, some believe it's a future temple. There's elements in it look like a, a restoration of the garden, which I think kind of goes along with the restoration of the cosmos center, of the, the earth to me. And so that's the message. It's the gospel message of sending out the image bearers who represent the kingdom of heaven on earth to expand territory in that way. I mean, the goal is for the sovereignty of God to cover the whole earth and we're the ones called to do that. Like he doesn't just, he doesn't wave a magic wand and make everything okay. He yeah. uses his image bearers Man. to do his work. We work with him. People seem to forget that. They're just waiting for like, you know, here's the wand, everything's good, yeah. all is restored and I'm out of here. Well, it yeah. doesn't work yeah. that way.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, so I'm gonna ask you about Noah's nakedness. Uh, there's a, a lot of differing opinions about that oh, as yeah. well. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, honestly, I don't know that I have a good answer for it. That was what I wrote in the books, kind of like, well, here's a possibility.
1: Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about that, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to hear about any possibility. And I'm sure the listener will, will as well.
0: <laughs> well, typically uh, you find nakedness is associated with exile. Like I, you know, I find that over and over again. So that's kind of where I I connected it. So we see when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they were going to put, you know, ketanet clothing of of skins, the ketanet of light, they say, I don't know what it actually, but they found themselves naked, right? So there's this idea of that nakedness is associated with exile from the presence of God. You are no longer covered, if you will, with his presence. You are exposed now to the enemy because you are outside the camp Where there's wild beasts and all that weird stuff, you know, think of the wilderness and the things that are out there and how you're exposed to death. So I associated this, the idea of nakedness and and exile and death. So we're hard pressed to understand what exactly Noah's sin was, because I write quite a bit in the book about vineyards and and wine, because that was a big deal in the ancient world especially in the ancient Near East uh, Mesopotamian cultures, man, that, you know, wine went with the king. The king was responsible to make a vineyard. Common folk had no access, you know, to vineyards and wine. Um, obviously became as it, you know, by the time we get to the second temple period, that, that, that's changed. But if at the period of Noah, whenever, you know, whenever we dated it, um, and so vine- uh, that's why I wanted to have Noah ma- build a vineyard first uh, up north. Then there's a, this destruction that comes, but the vineyard is in an essence preserved because after the flood, he finds a cluster of grapes and just kind of keeps on going. So vineyards were always associated with kings. So we have that in Noah. We have the priest, priest-king office, and he, he builds a vineyard. Of course, he builds it this time. We have God building the ark. And he does what he's supposed to do. I mean, he's raising the vines, et cetera. And, you know, they were supposed to drink and they did drink to excess. That was somewhat common back then as well. Just getting drunk wasn't quote unquote a sin. So I'm trying, you know, I'm looking at this going because it kept, it's talking about that he profaned and the, the Hebrew halal or in the word there, halil, it means to pierce or to open. And typically, In the Bible, the idea of you have two domains, you have that which is holy and that which is profane, the holy being sacred, uh, the profane being common. So it seemed to me what what was the greater problem here is that he had made the holy and the sacred, that which is set apart for God's purpose and function. He had made it into a common space, giving it access to everyone. Because now when you go into the temple, you could only go to certain chambers and, and um, uh, courtyards based on you know, your office. So obviously you couldn't just walk in and go into the Holy holies. So s- spaces were designed for certain purposes and certain people at certain times. And if you went into a different space where you weren't supposed to be, you, had, you were making that space common. So they have to get you out of there and then restore the sacredness of the space. Right. So go through a whole process. So that's, that's kind of how I approached it that somehow, and I, I'm not, I don't know that I have a good answer. uh, Somehow Noah had made that which was sacred profane. He had made it common open, if you will, to everyone instead of, you know, just for its purposes for God. And I don't know if that's a particularly great answer, but that's, because I read so much stuff and I was so confused by the time I read it all, I didn't even yeah. know what I thought anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I appreciate your, your humility there. Um, and I also appreciate your insight. I, I thought that was uh, very interesting, something I never heard before. And I'm like yourself had read um, a lot of different opinions on, on what was going on there. Um, and that was some new insight that I never heard. So I appreciate that as, as well. Uh, something I also never heard in your book Um, as I said earlier there's there's so much uh, so that happened for me quite a bit where I read and thought oh wow oh wow wow. wow." (laughs) so I think it's just really a a, a gifted teacher but uh the all the discourse um there's a lot of talk about oh yeah what Jesus meant by eating and drinking and marrying up up until the point where where judgment came and people point back to Noah uh, and you had you had some different insight on that, so uh, what was your insight as far as what he meant by the eating, drinking, marrying up up, up until the the day?
0: Well, so first of all, you know, we've got to look at Matthew 24, Luke 21, etc. We have to read it in context, and people don't seem to want to do that, and they just want to jump right into prophecy without, you know, looking at it from the perspective it was written, and there's no question, you know, if you think about where they are, Yeshua, they're on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking down at the temple and he's saying, not one stone will be left on another. And of course, people just take all that and turn it into a pretzel, trying to you know, find meaning in this. And to me, it's just kind of obvious. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, that it's going to be destroyed. And of course, again, we don't understand just how profoundly catastrophic this is. And of course, this is much earlier than 70 common era. But all of that, he, he's, he's letting them. So the entire chapter is dealing with the coming destruction of the temple. So I, uh, you know, in my mind, it, it, this is a temple pattern. The whole, you know, if you go back and read it with temple eyes, and you will see all kinds of things that are related to the temple specifically. So that got me thinking, well, if that's the case, and how many times have we talked about you know and they were marrying and giving a marriage and then the flood came and you know eating and drinking i'm going i'm sorry but there has to be more here we eat and drink every day and get married <laughs> That's right yeah <laughs> like, yeah you're right this is, like this isn't special here yeah, so there's yeah. something going on now when we ask the question of why was the temple destroyed is because his priests not all of them But his the the structure of the priesthood, the the leadership, I should say, of the priesthood in the temple had totally contaminated it had, you know, there was stuff going on there, graft and bribery and, you know, they were enslaving people through interest. I mean, the guy in charge isn't the legitimate high priest. They have contaminated the sacred space. And God's presence is, go- is never going to dwell in a place that's been contaminated by man's, you know, nature, <laughs> his greed and all that sort of thing. And so that's the connection is, the, you know, the, he's taken the priesthood down and they're going to lose the place where they make all their money, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, I'm, so then I went back and, okay, Noah is building an ark. It represents a temple. He serves as a priest. And what do priests do? Well, basically, I, as I mentioned, they have to be married. They cannot serve in the temple unless they're married. And their function is basically to provide food for the priests to serve in that space and then give the food that belongs to God to him. Like they spent a lot of time in the temple eating. You think about all the offerings and all the food that went to them and they had to eat it in a certain place, etc. Uh, not everything, but they you know, they had wine libations, wine was poured out, wine was drank. I mean, the whole place is, you know, a big Jewish meal just about every day. So that I thought, you know what, I, I think this has more to do with the priesthood the, of what their purpose and function was daily than it does, you know, we're all out here drinking and eating and marrying every day. And so I, I I tied it purposely. Can I prove it? No, of course not. And I didn't find anyone else who agreed with me. So I said, maybe, (laughs) maybe this is the case, but it made sense to me uh, logically. So that's why I I put it in. And I've been thinking about it for a a very long time and I felt ready to kind of, to say something about it.
1: Yeah. It made sense to me as well, because I kind of always, people go back. To, to Noah because they you know n- now they want to make the the tie between marrying and, and Nephilim and, right. and and that sort of marriage uh but really outside of that you're right it, it it almost makes it meaningless if we're just talking about eating drinking and marrying because that could apply to any time period ever um yeah. we're always eating drinking and marrying so when I read that I, I um I, I I liked it um i think it makes a lot of sense i never really thought about it once again we're talking about the temple so it just uh it resonated with me uh, and i i thought it was really great insight so um yeah i tell
0: you know, people I there's they, only three rules in bible study context context context
1: yeah <laughs> and yeah. somehow
0: we throw them all out
1: <laughs> yeah yeah certainly with the context it just makes it makes a lot of sense for me so uh another thing you mentioned and i had you know we Have different ideas about this as well. So the the end of the age that Jesus was referring to at his ascension, um, what was that age that he was referring to?
0: Well, in my, you know, again, this is just my opinion, but have, you know, with the things I was reading and and going back to when the children of Israel and Moses, the end of Deuteronomy, and they're ready to cross, you know, Joshua take the mantle and cross over. And the more I read, and uh, N.T. Wright kind of got me thinking about this as well, that uh, that the it wasn't like a physical literal thing like on you know this day in 2060 thing the end of the age but the idea of the end of exile because everything takes us back what the whole story you know within the creation story is they're in the land or out of the land or in the land you know They've been exiled from the presence of God and the end of the age had to do being restored back into his presence. So I, I connected that Yeshua ultimately made that possible forever to, for us to be restored to the presence of God. And so with that came, that was the end of the, the age of the temple where you had to go to the temple in order to approach God and go through the proper protocol And you could, again, could only go into, you know, as far into the temple as you were allowed to go. And now we see with Yeshua and his resurrection, the end of the age meant that any person, you know, could approach God through Messiah and that exile from the presence of God was
1: essentially over. Yeah, that's awesome. That's So cool. So my follow-up to that is we see Paul and Peter referring to what we would, a lot of people would refer to Christ's second coming that of course, you know, physically it never happened. So would you see their references to this end of the age being that same age, or did they get it wrong? Were they, were they really looking for Christ to return uh, during their lifetime?
0: So I have to be completely honest. This is an area of puzzlement that I have been thinking about for a very long time. And I don't yet have a good answer. And I wouldn't want to throw something out there. And then people are going to lock me up because
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: saying, yeah. I don't have a good answer for this at all. And so I have pretty well avoided it until the Lord kind of sh- shows me and helps me connect the, the dots there. You know, I, I just kind of go back, you know, I don't know. I understand that, you know, in Acts chapter one, Yeshua ascended he is a pattern of enthronement. And it's significant. And I talk about in the book, and I talk about it quite a bit in uh, the Garden Book about the Mount, the significance of the Mount of Olives. And so that was the place of enthronement. So interesting and fascinating, this place called the Mount of Anointment, because you see that God's presence, what, you know, abandoned the temple and it's going to be destroyed here. So how do we, you know, find the presence of God? And again, you know, there's this Yeshua on the throne, you know, on top of the mountain, those are visual images. How that reflects in our, you know, physically, I don't have a good answer for that, but I, but I understand that he has been enthroned. He went through the entire enthronement process through the course of his life. So he has taken the throne and he now, you know, serves as high priest and mediator uh, between God and man. And which is ultimately how creation is restored because we have a perfect mediator who can always mediate on our behalf and allow us to come into God's presence. And so uh, beyond that, I am not ready to say.
1: I got you. I got you. Play it safe. Um, So I have another age question for you. I, I think you mentioned this in the book briefly. I'm not certain on that. When is your assessment of when the age of the gentiles began
0: Um, you know i haven't really given that much thought um that'll be that's i know there's a lot of different they go back to jacob's uh prophecy there the the companion and company um and then the fish thing i can't remember what chapter it's in uh genesis 35 i want to say um speaking of you know, I, I don't see it. I think that's what it was in the beginning, <laughs> that the point of creation of God um, as king was to the whole earth. And we do know, I mean, this is another area where we can argue because a lot of people think that I don't see Adam and Eve as like the first people and then there was no one else. I see them as the first to be, to rule over the sacred space, to rule over, you know, to be kings over God's camp, and that God's camp is separated from the nations. Like we always have, there's only two uh, boxes, if you will. There's the nations, and then there's God's kingdom. There's the kingdoms, the, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our God, and there's no middle ground. So you're either in the nations, or you're in the camp of Israel. And I don't personally think that even from the beginning, there was ever supposed to be a distinction. So Adam was supposed to rule over the whole world benevolently to bring peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness, which is the, the bottom line role of the king to the whole earth. So if we do have people, which I believe we did, that was his job. Like if there were cultures and and, and empires in the ancient Near East world of Mesopotamia, he was responsible to rule over them and to show how a, per, a king ruled justice, justly and righteously. So I I think that that's really from the beginning, from Genesis chapter one, as God established his his kingdom on earth.
1: Nice. And nice. Uh, it's interesting that you, you just said that uh, what you thought about Adam and Eve, because I just did an episode um, with Joshua Das, and he has a sort of theory uh, that he puts forward or he sort of, um, reconciles, uh, evolutionary theory and a, a young Adam and E. He believes they, they can both be true. So what's your assessment, um, given what you just said of who these people are outside of the garden?
0: I, I would just, I would say this, the nations, you know, the yeah. nations function outside the camp of Israel. And so the, we see the whole process, you know, we, when we talk about in Isaiah and stuff where the nations of the world will come up for, for tabernacles, for Sukkot to worship the king. This was always God's goal. And so he used a specific people to reach the nations and bring them into the camp. And there was, of course, a protocol if they were going to come into the camp. Of course, it didn't work out that way. And because yeah. the people that he chose kept blowing it. And yeah. so, you know... I just, the, the idea of the whole world worshiping God from the beginning, there was always the story of worship, of the of every the story of creation. So if you go through Genesis chapter one, um, I would also submit that the language in Genesis, Genesis chapter one has to do with worship protocol as well. Um, I think it was Morales that said that worship was the telos of creation, which means worship is the goal of creation to come before God in allegiance and worship and to be summoned before him. And so when we talks about in in Genesis chapter one, and it was evening and it was morning the first day on through and everybody argues over, is it 24 hours? Is it 24,000 years? Is it, you know, whatever I'm going, well, by specifically using language of evening and morning, those were the were times in which the priests approached God with with offerings. And so I put it back into a temple construct. So again, the idea is that God, you know, the full, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It was for all men for all time to be able to approach the King and dwell inside the sacred space. But when you break covenant, you are relegated to exile outside the sacred space. And so every time Israel broke covenant regularly, they would be exiled out of that space and, and, and into the nations. So they were exiled into Assyria, they're exiled into Babylon, they're exiled into Rome. That's where you go when you leave. But when you return, you know, again, this is the place of God's presence, and it was always designed for the nations to be there.
1: So you, you believe that in Genesis chapter one, where God creates man and woman, he creates the nations Genesis chapter two, he creates Adam and Eve. You you believe that he created.
0: I don't see personally this again, personally, I don't see this as material creation. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to me is a, a, um, it is a declaration of a covenant being made between the heavens and the earth, because the whole body, there's a whole nother theme. I mean, we could talk about covenant in scripture till the cows come home, but right out of the gate, God has, has essentially made a covenant between heaven and earth. Now, you know, that sounds really weird. And then when you come into Genesis chapter two, verse four, I believe it is, and it'll say, these are the accounts or the history or the geology of the heavens and the earth when they were created you know like huh how you know how did and that hebrew word there is "toldot," which means to bring forth children so how on earth are we bringing forth children right. between heaven and earth like none of this makes any hmm. sense but this this is the creation process so i would just again opinion but heaven was the domain or the realm of the kings and so when you you always put a temple on top of a mountain and when you ascended the mountain and entered into the temple it was as though you entered into heaven and earth was the domain of his priests his image bearers and the the seas were the nations outside the camp of israel so mm. the, the 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 covenant was made between heaven and earth between god and his image bearing people and mm. so they together like a marriage would produce children, which would be called the sons of God, because every king in the ancient world, when the king passed his throne inheritance to his son, that son was called the son of God. And every king was called the son of God because mm. uh, of divine kingship. So this mm. was this real, this connection. So when that covenant between heaven and earth, between king and son, uh, king and servant was broken, then if, Pardon my French, all hell broke loose. And so I've never seen it as God making people out of, you know, uh, skin and bones and stuff, but as a creation covenant, as God making a covenant between two parties that will bear fruit and produce. And so the marriage is simply in the same imagery and pattern as that covenant. So the wow. goal of creation is just to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Wow, that makes sense.
1: Some sense, yeah. Um, I'm getting I'm getting the message behind which which is what I love about your teaching is you don't you, you don't get too stuck in the the minutia and you, you're you're always giving application. So that much I. That much i do get um, and i appreciate yeah, it
0: in part i mean you're talking about things that are kind of way out there
1: yeah, and yeah.
0: but again i always i am a very practical person so i'm always looking for the practical application and things like i just don't go into the alien world it's just not it's yeah, not me yeah. i don't see life that way and yeah, and yeah. i don't see how that's helpful to anybody but if we yeah, can understand yeah. the value of covenant how important it is how it is everything and how what happens when you break it, when literally when the covenant is broken, the entire uh, cosmos is in a state of chaos. And it's reflected in nature in, you know, in a variety of ways. So breaking covenant, we see a lot of that language in scripture. So the sun darken and the moon turns to blood and stars are falling out of the sky. And we got all this, you know, we got famine and pestilence and all this stuff. And really, this is the fruit of breaking covenant.
1: Yeah. So I want to move on to uh, our last segment. Ask you some personal questions before I go there. I'm actually okay. just curious uh, about this. Have you have you done any teachings on the Book of Revelation?
0: I have. I did a lot in the '90s, and after I discovered I was always wrong, I put it away for about 15 years. That's it. I'm not yeah. even reading this book. Yeah. And then um, I guess, when did we, a friend of, of mine, uh, Ryan White, we worked together. We put out a series on um, Revelation and what we did, in, we didn't go through it chapter by uh, chapter per se, and we didn't go through it verse by verse. But what we did was we gave everybody the context of the, of the book. And so we did a lot of historical information, you know, ancient Rome and, Tried to break down, you know, the the different ways of looking at the book and how different ones see it, and um, I th- it was a really good was a really good series, and hopefully people are getting a lot out of it. So we went through it in that way. So I I have taught uh, various parts of it. Um, I I definitely don't have the same view as a lot of people, and I don't necessarily. Um, Granted, looking at the last two chapters, you have to say that at some point, God's going to restore, through yeah. human agency, is going to restore all this. So, And I don't, times, I can't figure all that. But most of the book, I would say 90% of the book is dealing with the destruction of the second temple.
1: Got it. Um, you think we're, we're, we're nearing Christ's return? No? God, I hope so.
0: <laughs> no, we're... Uh, <sighs> i you know again who knows but i do so if you and i tried to get this point across in the noah book is so uh, world empire emperors <laughs> world rulers always do the same thing you know they expand their territory militarily and kill everybody to take control and so Thank we you. saw that you know in the ancient near east we you know as as uh, assyria expanded and the neo Assyrian and then the Babylonian, Neo-Babylonian, the Persian, you know, they they would take that territory and continue to expand it until we reach Rome, which is that area at its largest extent. And all with it, you know, the tyrants, emperor, they always do the same thing, enslave all their people. You know, they make life miserable for everyone and they control all the resources. So that's just what they do. Tyrants have done that from the beginning of time. And so, we've been in a long period of nation states, kind of like the city states of old, where everyone, every nation is sovereign over its own nation. And so now here we are seeing a return. Like if if God's people aren't influencing the culture, and if God's people, God's people are supposed to have a different nature than human nature, because human nature is not good. And so because God, I mean, We have expanded over the earth, and you know we built hospitals and fed people. I get all that, but in our country, in particular, God's people basically reverted into the four walls of their churches and isolated themselves against the culture, and so the culture just went uh, to the place that it was going to go. You know, back to the weeds and the thistles and the thorns, and so now we're seeing because God's people. his image bears didn't do their job in America, per se, for a long period of time. The weeds outside (laughs) have been growing and blooming and producing. The squeeze is on. And now we are seeing for the first time in, I mean, I can't really think of, you know, we have, of course, we had our world wars, but it didn't involve every single nation. Now we are seeing the the bringing together of every single nation on planet Earth under this banner of these world rulers. And this, they're going to target all of Christianity in a way we are not ready for. Our only example might be communist China to see how the Christian, the underground church lives there or the underground church in Iran. But I'm just saying we're all going to be the underground church here on planet Earth in short order. So the powers it be the elites the globalists whatever you want to to call them have are in a place that we always end up in because god's people didn't have a presence out in the culture that's just kind of my opinion so we are headed for some really difficult times but in the midst of all that you know it's uh that suffering that that being in that crucible of suffering is the thing that will birth out kingdom of heaven to the four corners of the earth so that's that's the good news it's just going to be in the flesh because we worshiped at the altar of comfort and convenience for so long well, you know our flesh is going to be squeezed in a way most of i mean i don't have a clue so we're, we're about to reap the whirlwind here
1: yeah um let me start our personal section off okay. uh just kind of giving us um some hope there for someone that, that's listening and maybe doesn't have that hope. Can you give us the gospel in, in one minute?
0: Well, that's kind of hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just gave it in what, an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, um, I would just say, you know, if we understand we start with uh, that the, the cosmos is a kingdom, it's a governmental structure that God rules and reigns over and that he set up his throne on earth, and he made his image bearers, um, gave them a way to come into his presence, and to expand the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, His human image bearers failed, they were exiled out of the garden, and the contamination process of the cosmos began, and so the whole rest of the Bible is dealing with the restoration of the whole of the cosmos to its original form, if you will. And so the it's the return of the created order into all of life. I mean the the ultimate the heart of God, the attribute of God is life. And so he is in the process of restoring life. And so ultimately Yeshua Jesus the king who you know died, and was buried and on the third day raised from the dead, this, the story of the resurrection. Resurrection is the ultimate act of created order and so by his resurrection and his restoration to the throne hanging on that tree he restored heaven and earth they became, you know to one and enabled his people to come in his into his presence so our job as image bearers is to take that message out to everyone we see that the resurrection life is is transformative and restores back to you individually life that's been taken from you whether you're lost in addiction or you know whatever it is your your life your nature will be redeemed and resurrected in the same way he was in bodily form in order for you to participate in 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 um in expanding the kingdom on earth and restoring all people into his presence
1: amen awesome so just uh so that we can kind of get to know you on a personal level what are some uh, movies tv shows uh books and music that you listen to
0: yeah I had a really, the problem with me lately is I've spent all my time reading scholarly works. I forget that there's life after that. So I kind of had to go back. So I, I, I went way back into some, um, I'm a murder mystery fan. I love to solve murder mysteries. So I, one of the, well, two movies I really liked from way back when, we're, going, we're talking way back when, was Witness for the Prosecution and Double Indemnity. I loved those Um, More modern. I mean, Schindler's List was a one really profound, you know, profound movie. I mean, yeah. Sophie's Choice was another one like that. Um, I loved Amazing Grace, the the story of William Wilberforce and, and how he overturned the slave trade from Parliament. My favorite might be um, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, which was on PBS for many years. I love, he's a little detective from Belgium and he would solve all these crimes. I mean, I watched every single, single one. I loved Agatha Christie. Um, more modern, uh, Down Abbey was a big favorite of mine and uh, Poldark, that was recently on. And then I have to say, when I was a child, when I came home from school, every single day I watched the same program, and that was Perry Mason.
1: Because oh, cool. I,
0: yeah. So you can see that tendency, and I just, I love to solve crime. I mean, not, not the, you know, graphic stuff, but just uh, your basic murder mystery I like to solve and read, yeah. read stories like that.
1: Cool, right on. Yeah. My wife and I were watching, we're watching through Downton Abbey right now. Oh. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, what about music and in, in books?
0: So music's kind of the same. I was actually a DJ for a number of years. I also I worked in a number of record stores when when we had records.
1: Yeah. Vinyl
0: records. Um, I worked in record stores. In fact, in Ottawa, I worked at Sam the Record Man for a number of years. Hmm. So what happened was I would listen. I listened to music eight hours a day every day, and I just hmm. couldn't handle it anymore. And so now I don't even in in the day in my house nothing is on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But when I go back, so if I go back to my time, I guess Bob Dylan was my probably my all time favorite. Um, Joni Mitchell. I was a big fan of jazz. Love jazz, um, especially Brazilian jazz. So um, I'm trying to think: Antonio Carlos, Joe Beam, um, Jaco Pastorius, people like that. Weather Weather Report. Uh, then in the more rock and roll I was a big moody blues fan uh, I liked Emerson Lake and Palmer um, jazz I liked Wynton Marsalis Pat Metheny some of those and today I think when I'm listening tend to be Michael Buble and um, who else do I oh Andrea Bocelli I really enjoy listening to him I never yeah. listen to Christian music. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some really great songs. Don't get me wrong, but I like big band, and I used to back in the in the 60s and 70s, I listened to a lot of Motown. That was I really like Motown. <laughs> cool. A little eclectic there. <laughs>
1: yeah, very eclectic. Yeah, um, that's great. Uh, what about uh, books? Do you have any? Okay, I'm not there? giving
0: you any uh, Christian commentary jewish nothing because okay yeah really so one of my most favorite series was uh i don't know if you've ever heard of bodhi taney she's a christian historical fiction author her and her husband brockwright and she wrote a series back gosh, early 80s called the zion chronicles and i loved that book it was about the founding of the state of israel but it was historical fiction and you know, I just worshipped the way she wrote, and she was a big inspiration to me in in terms of writing. And today, I can say we're good friends, which is really cool because you never know how that's gonna. And she wrote the foreword for my second book, and she's written, you know, read all my book and and just been, you know, very supportive. So I loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a big Victorian era fan, so a lot of Jane Austen. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, George Eliot, Middlemarch, and um, Silas Mariner. What else? Love the Bronte sisters, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. Uh, I liked Leon Uris, uh, The Exodus. That was kind of that was a really great one. Of course, back in the day, I did read Orwell's 1984. That had a profound effect on me, and as well as um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, The Gulag Archipelago. Uh, you know, I tried to reread it. <laughs> I can't handle it. I was a big fan of Charles Dickens, Great Expectations, um, Picture of Dorian Gray. I made my kids read Lord of the Flies, uh, William Golding, and that book had a profound effect on me. I still think of that book all the time, really. Um, Daphne du Maurier, I liked. Uh, her. her, her Rebecca, that was kind of a murder mystery. C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Screw tape Letters, things like that. And uh bonhoeffer who's a bit i'm a big fan of dietrich bonhoeffer so the cost of discipleship so those are
1: wow. some of them <laughs> awesome yeah also eclectic um they're coming out with the lord of the flies movie i don't know when it comes out but i know they're, oh. they're a new version of it so hopefully so-
0: it's not rated r because i don't watch anything rated r so
1: <laughs> yeah yeah we'll see um i think there's a teaser out now it looks like it, it could be good okay um so if you could be a spectator on five events of the Bible, uh, what would be those, those five events that you would like to see? Okay, So the,
0: well, that, not in order. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh,
0: I would love to be at the the Akedah, the binding of Isaac on the mountain with Abraham going up and the angel, you know, <laughs> I'd like to see that story like that. Yeah. That yeah. one's always, for Jews, that one's just, that's like one of the most important um, Bible stories for, for a Jew. And so yeah. I, you know, I was raised on that and, and just, you know, the whole, pu- it's just a puzzling story. I did write about it in the garden book and t- had a different take on it. So um, I would like to be at the dedication of the first temple when Solomon finished and they had, you know, they celebrated for two, uh, two weeks of uh, Sukkot. Normally it's seven days, but they did a double thing. So that would have been, a, I would have really enjoyed that. I would like to be at the Transfiguration, get yeah. a firsthand report there. I would also like to have been at the Sermon on the Mount, sitting, mm-hmm. listening. <laughs> and I would say the other one would be, I would like to have been at the uh, Red Sea, Reed Sea, Yom Suf, when the children of Israel are going to cross over and the seas parted. I would like to, those those would be my five.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think probably that that's the number one response is the Red Sea, I think. Yeah. Um, um hmm. so let me say uh thank you once again i uh have now my, my curiosity has been piqued i'm gonna go back and read the whole series um, yeah probably uh you know look at your teaching on revelation as well but uh tell people um where they can get the books and how they can get in touch with you so all the books are on amazon
0: so that's a piece of cake um, they're in uh, the three formats: Kindle, paperback, and Audible. So whatever you choose. And my website is uh, www.foundationsintorah.com. So it's a membership site, but I have free membership. So if you want to sign up and if you want to support me, that that would be great as well. And every, you know, all my teachings are pretty pretty well on Foundations and Torah. And uh, as far as I I am on Facebook. I'm sorry. I don't want to be, but my tribe is still there. <laughs> I keep hoping they'll leave. and I can just shut it down. <laughs> but yeah. for now, and also, but I'm on Getter somewhat, although I haven't really gotten a lot of traction on Getter. I think it's really more for political, the politically minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Telegram is another place that you can get me. I'm at, uh, at Dr. Dina and Getter is at Dr. Dina. And I think Facebook's just Dina Die. I mean, just go Dina, Dr. Dina, you'll pretty much get me. So Telegram's kind of a good place to get a hold of me. And then you can always send me an email. It's very easy. It's just Dina Dye at protonmail.com. So those are uh, and I would really encourage you to go to the website. Like there is, you know, it's there's a ton, it must be like five or six hundred videos on there and yeah, awesome. just a lot of stuff.
1: So awesome i will put a link in the show notes for anyone interested uh so they can do just that um but uh i'd love to have you back on like i said i'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna dig in and, and thank and- you
0: for uh great questions and good discussion so i really and i really appreciate the fact that i know you read the book <laughs> so <laughs> it's definitely easier to do an interview when you know someone's actually read it and you know has Kind of chewed it over and and has the yeah. questions based on that. So thank you for doing that.
1: Yeah, well, uh, of course, yeah, I I can't stand listening to an interview and I know the interviewee uh, and the interviewer hasn't read the material because for me when I read you know when I look at an interview I want usually I've already read the you know I've already seen the movie or read the book or whatever and I'm trying to get some right. good insight. So yeah, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I try to I try to get some something more out uh you know than, than just what's what's in the book so uh thank you um for for answering the questions well and like i said you have sparked my my interest and i'm gonna you know go to the website and and, and dig in some more so I, I appreciate your work really do um thank you. any last closing words and then you can uh, close this out in prayer
0: yeah so um lord i just lift up everything that was said this morning that it'll go out on the airwaves and lives hearts and minds will be transformed lord this isn't just information but this is just transformation in hearts of your people and i pray that it will be a call on everyone's life to do something that god has called us to find our gifts and talents and go out into the marketplace and be your image bearers to to work the marketplace if you will lord and that we join with you and help to restore the whole world that we bring this message of resurrection power and life to transform the nations into your image and likeness and thank you lord amen
1: amen there you have it ladies and gentlemen hope you enjoyed if you did make sure to share this with somebody you know like and subscribe if you're watching on youtube you're listening on your favorite podcasting app leave us a rating and review you can email me at the weird christian podcast at gmail.com and with that being said we'll catch you on the next one